This morning we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4. Please turn there in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 as we continue to see how Peter provides instruction for Christians who are living in a society that is spiritually on the decline and is facing increasing persecution from those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of all creation. And here, Peter becomes quite practical. So let's listen carefully. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This week, my cousin, Joe Shaw, was laid to rest. Joe was 74 years old. He was the nephew of my father and was carrying the Shaw name in the Carolinas along uh, with uh, his sons. Joe found out on a Monday recently, last two weeks ago, he found out on a Monday that he had terminal cancer and he died on Wednesday of that week. Two days, 48 hours. That's all the time. And he didn't know that he had cancer. Nobody knew that he had cancer. He had no uh, signs of being sick. Now, what would that be like for you and for me if we found out? Let me make it a little easier for you. What if you knew that you had a year to live and that would be the end of your life because of some illness that you had? Of course, we don't know, do we? We don't know when we're going to contract a terminal illness. We don't know how we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. That's one reason Paul here wants to sort of shake the readers to remembrance and, and to a reminder of how important it is to live in a sense as if there's no tomorrow. Christians 
need to be reminded. They need to remind themselves every day when they get up, this could be the last day. We don't know, but we do need to be ready. So many times in the scriptures, we are warned about that and we are exhorted, be ready. And one of the phrases that uh, the writers of the New Testament used, not just Peter, but several others, something to this effect, the end is at hand. The end is near. And so Peter here wants to get their attention by telling them that so that they will understand and keep ever in their minds and hearts. I've got to use the days that God gives me in the, the most, the most urgent, with the most urgent sense of my calling. And if I live to be 20, 30, 40, 50 more years, I still need to live with that urgency because of those that I will rub shoulders with every day because they might not live but for a short time. Many of us have experienced that. We see somebody we've known for a long time and we think a lot of them and then the next thing we know, that was the last time we saw them because they died for some reason. Maybe it was a, a sudden accident or an illness. It, any number of things. The end of all things is near. And Peter says, when he, when he says that, he says, the end of all things is at hand or near, therefore. And so he's going to connect what he says in the rest of these verses we read with that introductory statement. So, what does that mean, that the end of all things is at hand or is near? Well, for Peter, of course, we know from the fact that we live 2,000 years later, we know that Peter wasn't saying that Christ was coming back any day now, which a lot of the early Christian church did believe. They just didn't know differently. And they had to receive instruction from that. So... If that's not it, what does it mean? It means that we know that Jesus has come now and that the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is referred to in the New Testament as the last days. That corrects a false understanding of the end times that project everything into right, what right, happens right before the coming of Christ. Peter is saying, the New Testament is saying, this whole epoch, this whole era, so far 2,000 years uh, along here, this whole period of time is the period of the last days. Jesus came and ushered in the kingdom of God when he came. The kingdom of God is at work in the world today. And the kingdom of God will be consummated when the king returns to make everything right. Now that should give us a sense of urgency, shouldn't it? This is the context in which you and I live right now in the year 2023. So what he's about to say in many ways is, is telling us how to live, how to live knowing that that's the case. 
How should we live knowing that it could all be over soon because nobody knows when Jesus is coming back? Now, let's look at what he says. Living near the end, verse 7 tells us, requires, first of all, cool heads. Cool heads. So in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Cool heads. We use that phrase sometimes, you know, like uh, cooler heads prevailed in the midst of an intense discussion usually. And everybody's kind of letting their emotions get the best of them. And uh, finally we, we say that, well, cooler heads prevailed and got people to calm down and work through their issues. Uh, Peter's saying, saying here that with that first word, he's talking about clear thinking, clear thinking. Sometimes we use this phrase in our uh, our wills. When we say, you know, at the beginning of the will, I, Joe Blow, being of sound mind and body, do bequeath this, my last will and testament, something along those lines. Being of sound mind. You and I, as Christians, need to be of sound mind. That simply means we need to deal with facts. We need to deal with reality. A lot of people think that Christians are those who have their heads up in the clouds. And they're not living in the real world. Well, the New Testament doesn't teach us to live like that. We need to live in, in the real world with the real situations that we face and, and, and look and, and face head on what uh, we are dealing with in life. The, the wonderful things, the terrible things, the whole uh, nine yards, as we say. And then he says, con he talks about controlled thinking, being self-controlled, sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Controlled thinking. He uses this, this same idea uh, back in chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And then again, in chapter 5, verse 8, where he talks about uh, our adversary going about like a roaring lion. It begins by saying, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Same word. It simply means that our thinking does not need to be caught up in the waves of popular sentiment or activities or emotions. One obvious example of this, I think, is how people tend to not, not be this way when they are expressing themselves on social media. We all probably, well, most of us, maybe if not all of us, have some taste of that. When something happens in the world, in our country, or whatever, and we, people just, you know, they've got to get on social media and just rant. 
about whatever it is that has them upset or whatever it is that they feel strongly about. But so often that's just merely blowing off steam. And, and it can have some pretty negative effects because it can cause other people to get all worked up about something. That's not the right way to deal with things. Sober-minded, controlled thinking. And if that's not enough to convince us, <clears throat> he says, for the sake of your prayers. He connects this. We need to do these things. We need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Our prayers will and should be impacted by heeding these injunctions. Because it means that we're going to pray with a proper <clears throat> biblical understanding of how things are working in the world and how we see things. We need to pray in terms of reality. We need to pray in terms of what we know is the case. So many times we hear things that are speculation. Even when we hear things like sources say, <laughs> you ever wonder who are those sources? Who are those guys? Sources say so-and-so is doing such and such. And, and when you hear accusations, Easiest thing in the world for non-Christians especially to do, and of course Christians can do it too, is to make accusations that are not based on facts. They're not true. They're simply efforts to, de to destroy someone else's reputation. We don't need to be engaged in that. <clears throat> and when we avoid those kind of things, we're able to pray on, in light of the way things are. You know, whether they're good or, they're, or they're, they're bad, we need to pray in the light of those things. Our prayers can be more effective that way. And that praying needs to be continual. Now, that's what the idea is here, for the sake of your prayers. Have discernment, have understanding. <clears throat> Think about Mary and Martha. Luke 10 tells us that, that uh, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus while he was in their home teaching. There Mary was, quietly listening, filling her mind with, with truth, the truth of Christ, the truth of the grace of Jesus for sinners like you and me. And what was Martha doing? She was running around like a chicken with her head cut off all worked up in the kitchen. You know, got to fix the great stuff. I got to have everything just right for Jesus. Well, that's good that you want to do things for Jesus, but not at the expense of worship and teaching when that opportunity is there. You know, we can be guilty of that too. We can get all you know, going all around the house fussing and worrying about company coming for Sunday lunch. And it's so important that we just can't make it to church. You know, I don't want to go off on a tangent on that, but I guess you can figure out what I think about that. Nothing should interfere with our worshiping God. If company's coming, 
you need to control that as much as you can, understand. But if company is coming, invite them to church with you. Tell them that if we're going to eat at home, we're going to eat a little later. And we may eat something very simple. I mean, it can be done without hopefully jeopardizing your relationships with company. Just have to remember what our priorities are. There's a saying, of course, I, I don't remember the whole thing, but it says, if you can keep your head about you when all those around you are losing theirs, Christians should be able to keep their heads about them when everything else is just all over the place. Living near the end requires cool heads. Lord, give us sound minds, self-controlled spirits so that we can think and process things properly in the light of God's word. Secondly, living near the end requires warm hearts. Verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Faithful living is not just a matter of the head, of course. It's a matter of the heart. Love is needed. We need to know the truth, but we need to live the truth, which includes supremely loving. The great commandment, love God. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You love God more than you love anything else, anyone else. And corresponding to that, Jesus taught, love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul heard Jesus say that, no doubt, many times. I mean, the Apostle Peter. And Peter is referring to that when he says, above all, this is, this is top priority. Love your fellow believers in your common Savior. Love one another. And here he's teaching, of course, that this love needs to be earnest, it says. It needs to be intense in the sense that it needs to be so strong that we will stretch ourselves. That's, that's literally the idea here, stretching ourselves to do whatever we can to minister to the needs of other people. You know, it's easy to think otherwise. It's easy to think about people that have done us wrong. There was an elder in the church that I served who was a, a cattle farmer. And he, he was taken advantage of by a business partner and he lost a whole lot of money. Completely changed his way of living. It was that much. And he never did retaliate. He never tried to get even. I don't think he even went very far legally. He was trusting in a sovereign God. He knew God was going to take care of him. That was many years ago, and God has taken care of him and blessed him and his wife uh, all the way through since. Never became rich. <clears throat> but he left that to the Lord. The Lord's going to right all the wrongs that take place in your life and in my life. We don't have to be that concerned about it. But it gives us 
a perspective that we need. And that coupled with what Christ has done in forgiving all our sins should prompt us to see if God has forgiven me so much, this is what Jesus taught in Matthew 18, if God has forgiven me so much, why shouldn't I forgive the relatively minor things, even though they can be major in terms of how much money we lost or how terrible somebody treated us? God's going to take care of us because we're His. We're His, and He's going to always provide. Jesus taught us that in Matthew 6. You know, don't be anxious about these things. So we've got to love one another because it says love covers a multitude of sins. He's referencing there Proverbs 10 verse 12. Love covers a multitude of sins. And the, the first part of Proverbs 10, 12 gives us a contrast. This is the way it's expressed. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. Love covers all offenses. There may be a multitude of sins that people commit against you when you start thinking about them all. But you cover them. That's the word, that's a redemption word. Our sins are covered in the blood of Christ. The whole idea of covering, of covering is found from the time that the tabernacle was built and the, the uh, Holy of Holies had the, the Ark of the Covenant and there was a covering there based on the blood of the sacrificed animals. Our sins are covered <clears throat> by the sacrifice of Christ. And our sins <clears throat> are covered by Christ so that we in turn can demonstrate that same love of Christ by forgiving the sins of those who have sinned against us. We said that in the Lord's Prayer, didn't we? Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Our debts. Their debts to us. Love is a necessity. It's a necessity. You might think, well, <clears throat> I just don't feel very loving towards Joe or... or Betty or whoever it may be. Love is primarily an action. I have to say this over and over again, but that's the biblical idea. Emotions, <clears throat> they come and go. But again, reality, reality. We deal with people in the way that they have dealt with us, hopefully by grace, but we have to forgive them when they uh, do sin against us. Constant love. Constant love. That's what he's talking about here. Love grows as it is tested. Somebody said that uh, a toddler is someone who can step on your feet and hurt you. But a teenager is one who can step on your heart and hurt you even more. We can have those things happen to us, whether it's a toddler or a teenager or somebody that's older. So love is an activity. We're not told to feel something. We must, need, we must go out there and do it. And he says, do it in two ways. 
forgive others when they sin, as we said, and be hospitable to others. Hospitality. That's mentioned a number of times in the, the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. Hospitality is one of the requirements for an elder in the church. Since we're nominating people for the office of elder, that's one of the qualifications. They need to be hospitable. Hospitality was very important in the New Testament because they didn't have hotels. <clears throat> and hospitality means more than, than putting up people in your house. It, does in, it can include that, but it also means having people over for dinner, for dessert, for coffee, for fellowship. I know some of you do that. Maybe a lot of you do. I hope you do. And we can all do it more. R.C. Sproul uh, gave a little uh, reminder to us about the tendency to grumble when we have to read these things and say, oh, I'm supposed to practice hospitality. And then you say, okay, I'm going to do it. So you invite people over, and as the time gets closer and you've got to clean the house and do all these preparations, then you might start to grumble a little bit. So Sproul says, some people think guests are like fish. After three days, they begin to smell. That's pretty, pretty tough, isn't it? Um, people think, you know, I'm going, you know, stay as long as you need to. Uh, if you say that, you really do know what it means to live by faith. <laughs> um, because a month later, you may find out, hmm, this is a surprise. That rarely happens. But no matter what, look, Christ was hospitable to me. He welcomed me in permanently. We need to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ and be ready. You know, there's a lot that we can accomplish when we sit down together over a meal or over coffee and just talk. We get to know each other, don't we? Plus, we provide for loving, in loving ways for needs of other people. Do not neglect the importance of hospitality. Lastly, <clears throat> living near the end requires ready hands. Now, hands is involved here, but it's not just hands. It's your life as a whole. But I talked about head and I talked about heart. It's kind of hard to not have another point that says hands. <laughs> but it, does, it is found here. Peter concludes by rely, relaying the importance of serving. That's really what we're meaning by hands, serving. Well, how do you do that? By using our lives as God enables us to make a significant difference in the life of our church. Keep it local here. Don't think so much about how can I serve the church in the United States? How can I serve the church in the world? You can do both of those things by serving the church where you are a part. Peter says each person has received a gift or gifts from the Lord. And when he says that, the kind of gift he's talking about it's not something that's wrapped up in a box with a bow around it. It's a gift is a means of serving in the church. 
We call them spiritual gifts. There are several places in the New Testament that give us representative lists of the various gifts that God can give. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and right here. Those are the four primary texts where we learn about spiritual gifts. Just remember that you put all those together and that's not a list of every possible gift, but it gives you a pretty good idea. And you can break them down in two ways, and they're both mentioned here. All gifts basically come down to <clears throat> either being a gift of speaking or of serving. Speaking or serving. Some people, he says, uh, are called to, uh, looking at verse 10, well, verse 11, really, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Speaking is serving, but he's, he's saying that, that speaking is one way of using the, the abilities that God gives you and the Spirit <clears throat> directs you. He, put, he puts it on your heart. You know, I, I've, God's given me this ability. We don't, we don't have those abilities other than if God gives them to us. So don't get all puffed up and think that you're great shakes because God has blessed the church by giving you this spiritual gift that if you left town and suddenly and weren't here anymore, the church would just fall in. <clears throat> we have to, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to receive these humbly. Humbly. They, they come from God. Speaking gifts <clears throat> can include, <clears throat> excuse me, can, conclude, can include the ability to not have throat trouble like I do. <laughs> Maybe I need to reconsider what I do. It's kind of late for that, but <clears throat> <clears throat> some people have their speaking gifts of teaching. Some people have their gifts of being a minister uh, who proclaims the word from the pulpit, preaching. There's anything along those lines is speaking gifts. The charismatic approach says, oh, speaking gifts has to do with speaking in tongues. Well, some people do hold to that. Um, many of us in our theological camp believe that uh, the speaking of tongues in the New Testament was was temporary because it was re revelation from God that was being given to those who spoke in tongues and they spoke <clears throat> in known languages. And then once the scriptures were complete, then that activity ceased. But other than that, there's gifts of serving. You may not have gifts of speaking, not in the sense that you are able to to do it in a, in a way of teaching and, and uh, preaching. But God gives gifts of serving, and there's a whole lot of things that fall under that category. It's all kind of ways that you can serve. Everybody, that means you. You who may not know right now what your spiritual gift or gifts are. But others may know you've got spiritual gifts. You've got a heart for a certain kind of ministry. 
You've got a heart and an ability to do certain things. It's just something that you love to do and you love to serve others by doing that. Everybody in the church, I want to stress that, everybody in the church has and needs to use the gift or gifts God has given you. And every Christian needs to know what they are. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you need to begin to seriously, prayerfully undertake a way of finding that out. What would it be like if every member of the church knew their spiritual gift and was, was employing their spiritual gift? That would be such a terrific thing. And you can only do it in God's strength, as he says here. You might say, oh, I can't even imagine doing something like that. I just, I just don't think I could do that, you know. And, and, and here Paul is saying, yeah, if God's given you that gift, you can do it. And he wants you to do it. And the church will be better off if you do it. Because you need to do it in God's strength. It's a gift of grace that God has given you for the good of others. Some people have supposed successful ministries and they don't draw attention to God, but rather they end up drawing more attention to themselves or to their ministry uh, to, in order to get it to advance in the world's eyes. Bigger is always better, you know, uh, more money, uh, books written, all of these things. That's not what the Lord is talking about here. Bring glory to God in your gifts. That's how this passage ends. So that in all of this, he says, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ to him. Notice that. Not to you, not to me, not to us. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Only in the strength that God gives. The end of all things is near. Therefore, take these words to heart. What difference should this make? What Peter is saying here. What difference should this make in your life? Godly mothers are this way. Have you thought about that as we looked at this? Cool heads, Warm hearts, ready hands. That's what I saw when I was growing up in my mother. Many of you could say the same thing with yours. But all Christian mothers should see this as a way for them to be like Proverbs 31 woman. You know, this describes them. But even more than that, this describes no one less than our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it in Jesus' ministry. If anybody had a cool head, he did. The storm was threatening to kill the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was sleeping. He got up. He wasn't agitated. He wasn't upset. He rebuked them you know, for their lack of faith. But he took care of it. He calmed the storm. Cool heads. If anybody had a warm heart, it was Jesus. 
because his heart goes out to you and to me in love. And he proved it by his very death on the cross to redeem us from our sins and to make us new in Christ. And of course, that was a part of his ready hands. He was ready to do the will of God. And he did it for our sakes. So don't think of these exhortations from Peter as just, oh, if I do these things, God will like me and everything's going to be great. No, do these things in the light of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. And dependence upon him to enable you to keep these commandments. May it be that you exhibit in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit the cool heads of your self-controlled life, the warm hearts of loving others fervently, showing love to them, and your ready hands to do whatever God wants you to do. I love it when members say, oh, I'll be, I'll be happy to do that. I'd love to do that. We all need to be able to do that. One famous line that said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let that be so of you. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the love that you have exhibited to us in time and in space through the coming of Jesus into this world to bear our sins on the cross, to pay in full the penalty our sins deserve, to show love in a way that could never be shown in any other person, by any other person. But the model is there for us to put ourselves second and others first as we seek to keep the greatest commandment of all. Now we pray, Lord, that your spirit would prompt us to use the gifts that you have given us in simple ways, but being, being a means of blessing to others because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.